So we've got several short readings from Acts this morning. And the Bible references are printed on the back of your service sheet uh, where it says notes. So from Acts chapters 2, 8, 10 and 19. The first reading is on page 1093 and is Acts chapter 2 starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Then chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Then chapter 10, verses 44 to 46. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And finally, chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, 
they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. This is the word of the Lord. In the church's calendar, well at least the Western church, the Eastern Orthodox, are usually about two weeks adrift from uh, the rest of us for um, a reason in the 17th century when we changed, I think, to the, from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. But anyway, in the Western church, this is the Sunday when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, around 30 AD. In our church, uh, we're not sort of usually governed too greatly by the liturgical calendar, but um, usually at this time of year, we either have um, three sermons on Ascension, Pentecost, and the Trinity, and they're either in the morning or the evening. This year, they happen to be in the morning. Now, the day of Pentecost is Jesus' last big event before he comes again at the end of time. If you think about the, really the, the peak moments of Jesus' ministry 2,000 years ago, there was his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit to replace him so that uh, he who is now in heaven can actually be within us now. He sends his spirit, the spirit of Jesus lives in us who believe. And we celebrate and commemorate those great events in Jesus' life and ministry at Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Day, Ascension, which always falls on a Thursday when most of you are otherwise engaged, and Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, as I said, is the last big event until the Lord Jesus comes again when he will come as the judge of all people and he will recreate a new heaven and a new earth and we will live with him and work with him forever in a perfect world. Now, the day of Pentecost, that means kind of 50, is 50 days after the Sunday of uh, the Passover, the Sabbath of the Passover. So being 50 days after the Sabbath, which is on a Saturday, Pentecost will fall on a Sunday, the first day of the week. And one of the things that strikes me about looking at the events as we're doing this morning, about the day of Pentecost, is how so many little kind of snippets of events that happened or were mentioned during the kind of 2,000 years or so before Christ came, how they all kind of fit together. They're all clues to what is going on. So at Pentecost, which is one of the feasts of the Jewish calendar, one of their big festivals, it was variously known in the different books like Deuteronomy, Exodus and Numbers as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest or the Day of the First Fruits. And since what's called the intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament being completed and the New Testament being started, that period between about 400 BC and 4 BC, in Jewish thought there was a growing connection that uh, the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai was also commemorated at Pentecost. Now that is quite an apt bunch of connections to this particular day. How what an apt day for taking Pentecost and that is the day that the Spirit of Jesus comes on earth in this new age when unlike the old age as we'll see he can permanently reside in the lives 
of believers. Because what we have on that day, given it's the Feast of Harvest, is a harvest of 3,000 who were added to their number, Acts 2.41. We have the first fruits of the labours of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has invested his life and now he's seeing, beginning to see the fruits of it. His sacrifice is paying off. And it is the day when the law is written on the hearts of believers. And the connections are not just coincidental. There is a God up there overseeing everything. He is bringing it, he has seen it all in advance, he's planned it, and over those 2,000 years where he has kind of comments here, hints there, acts there, all working towards his fulfilment of his grand plan of salvation, of which this is a significant day in which he acted. Well, let's have a look. The they are most likely the 120 rather than the 12. Um, it is debatable, but given the fact, I think, that uh, there are 15 nations later present and there are only 12 apostles, um, they need a few more than 12 to speak 15 different languages, don't they? That's just my contribution to the debate. It's not that important. In one place, that's most likely a house, um, the upper room, most likely. So let's have a look about what happened then on that particular day. Verse 2, there was a sound, there was a sign, and they spoke. The Spirit had long been connected with wind in the Old Testament. And of course, most famously, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, he talks about the Spirit as like a wind. You can't see it, but it's nonetheless there. And here in Acts 2, there is a sound like a mighty wind. And there was a sight that seemed like tongues of fire that come to rest on each of them. And when filled with the Spirit, they spoke in other tongues. Now, tongues, both in Greek and English, can mean one of two things. It can either mean that in my mouth that I'm using at the moment to speak to you, or it can mean a language. In fact, in Old English, if, um, if you look at the prayer book, the, the, the one from 1662, which originates from the middle of the 16th century, 100 years before, there's a few copies over there, they're small and blue. If you looked up Article 24 of the 39 articles, you would find this, that uh, um, it is forbidden for a service to be conducted in, quote, a tongue not understanded of the people. It means a language, it means the Latin language, because until the Reformation, um, the scriptures were only available in Latin, and the liturgy was in Latin, which meant that the ordinary kind of Christian believer had, did not have access to his source materials or to be able to express his faith in a language which he understood. That was one of the great blessings of the Reformation, that we have access to the scriptures and we can express our praise to God in our own languages, our own tongues, if you like. 
So back to Acts 2, we have a sound which was not the wind, but sounded like it. We have a sight which was not fire, but which resembled it. And we have speech by Jews in other languages, not their own native language, but nevertheless in languages which the Jews and the proselytes who came from 15 different listed nations, from the two great empires of the day, from the Roman Empire to the West and to the Parthian Empire to the East, they were there and they could understand. They heard the message in their own native language. This is a bizarre event. And the other languages, as evidence of receiving the Spirit, are repeated certainly on two and possibly three other mini-Pentecosts, which is why we had those other passages read. The sounds and the sights are unique to the day of Pentecost, but the languages are a common feature in two and possibly three of the others, as is the presence of the apostles. So Acts 19, looking at them in reverse order, where you have this rather kind of, um, they're almost a kind of stranded in time group. They are disciples of John the Baptist. Somehow, that's all they'd heard. And somehow, no other Christian missionaries had kind of come their way. And so, all they knew was about John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, but they hadn't heard of either Jesus and how they could be forgiven or the Holy Spirit and how they could have the Spirit of Jesus within them. And the Apostle Paul teaches them about Jesus, the one that John the Baptist uh, said would come after him. And hearing and presumably accepting that, they believed and were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul placed hands on them and the Holy Spirit, we're told, came on them and they spoke in other languages and prophesied or spoke about God. And similarly, Acts 10, 44 to 46, in the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion in the Italian cohort, who, um, although he was a Gentile, nonetheless had been drawn to monotheism um, perhaps intellectually, perhaps by the examples of uh, Jews he knew. And he is designated a God-fearer. And again, with such a disposition, we presume that after hearing the Apostle Peter share the Gospel, that Cornelius believed and the Holy Spirit came upon him and on all who heard, we presume that they didn't just hear, they must have accepted as well from what we uh, know is the norm, and again, we presume that they believed the message and the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles also. And this was a surprise to Peter and the other Jewish Christians who had come with him from Jerusalem. How did they know that uh, Cornelius and his friends had received the gift of the Spirit? Because like they themselves in Acts 2, they had been recipients and they spoke in languages and they praised God, Peter says, just as we have. And so then, as an outward mark of an inward reality, they were baptised in water. 
And then the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Philip is a deacon and he's an evangelist and he'd gone to Samaria and we read that he'd preached the gospel. It was attested by signs and wonders, miracles. People believed. They were baptized in water. But until the apostles Peter and John came up from Jerusalem about 40 miles away, they hadn't received the Spirit. When the apostles came, checked things out, they were prayed for, and they did receive the Spirit. And again, this was seen, verse 18. Well, can we assume that other languages were spoken and the Samaritans praised or spoke about God? Well, it's clearly not unreasonable to suppose so. But on the other hand, given that Samaritans and Jews spoke the same language, it may not have been necessary. But it's a reminder that Acts is not written so that in every encounter we have every box ticked. It's a narrative and it's not kind of precise like some kind of inspection. Some things are mentioned, some things are not. Some things are assumed, some things are not. You read them, you understand them within the context of the Gospels and the Epistles, and you are able to make a pattern from them. If you read it just from the Acts, you'll come up with a very chaotic um, solution. So it's quite clear that to be baptised in the Holy Spirit by Jesus the baptizer, spoken of by John the Baptist, is what is being fulfilled on each of these events and supremely on the day of Pentecost itself. Just as the outpouring of the Spirit spoken of by the prophet Joel and quoted in Acts chapter 2 is what is being fulfilled here. And then to finish off, there is the speaking in these other languages, either to God in praise or about God in prophecy. The order of events varies. The terms filled with, come down, poured out, received are all synonymous. They mean the same thing. They are interchangeable. What stands out here are two things which don't happen when anyone else in Acts is converted. In these three episodes, there is an apostle or two apostles who, uh, who pray for the people. Or in the case of the day of Pentecost itself, explains what has happened. There is an apostolic commentary only in these four occasions is the miraculous gift a sign of the Holy Spirit, of speaking in an unlearned language, but a language which other people recognize as their language. What is the explanation? Why the need for the apostles Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem? Why the foreign languages in Acts 2, 10, 19, and possibly 8 as well? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament and you go back over 2,000 years to Genesis 11 to the Tower of Babel when the nations on the plain of Mesopotamia, kind of Iraq, Iran sort of area, that they gang up on God. They had one language at the time in their region, what was the known world, and they built this massive ziggurat I looked up this morning as I said that at the first service and realised we've built one as well. It's a pyramid-shaped kind of building, but we weren't trying to reach God. We didn't get very far. Theirs was much bigger than this. And uh, they were rather 
proud of their achievements. They thought they were rising to the heavens, but God was not pleased. He did not like their, their, their pride, and he punished them by confusing their language and scattering them further across the world so that they couldn't then communicate with each other and gang up on him again. And so you can see, can't you, how Pentecost is a reversal of this. Not that God is giving human beings one language, again, but he is giving them one message which is conveyed through many languages so they can all hear the same message, connect with him, and unite properly with each other under him. And then the next chapter, Genesis 12, kind of amplifies this. God starts his rescue plan. And he does it by choosing Abraham and Sarah. And he, through them, forms a family. And that family become a tribe. And that tribe become a nation. And before Abraham had any children, he tells him that through his descendants, he will bless all nations. Not just the Jews through whom salvation would come, but for everyone. God's planning long-term. You see, so having punished human beings by scattering and confusing them, he now sets out to bring them together again. It's going to take a long time, 2,000 years BC Abraham lived. But when the time arrived, as it did the time of Jesus, and then on the day of Pentecost, and through these mini-Pentecosts, it is vital to anchor into the apostolic faith, into what you might call Reformed Judaism, Judaism as it was meant to become through recognising the Messiah. It's vital to anchor in not just the Jews who believe, but the Samaritans, who are half Jewish genetically and theologically, the Gentiles, who are the rest of the world, and this rather kind of um, stranded little group of the disciples of John the Baptist, it's vital to anchor them all in to the one church of God, through hearing the one message, receiving the same spirit in the presence of the apostles, who are the foundations of the church. So the outpouring or baptism of the Holy Spirit is one of the distinctive blessings of the new age, the time between Christ's leaving and Christ's returning. But the Holy Spirit being eternal didn't just suddenly appear then. He had been active throughout the Old Testament age, the old age, not just the new age. But there are differences. In the Old Testament, we read that he was in fact involved in creation. He's involved in the preservation of the universe. He's involved in providence, in working God's plans out. He's involved in revelation, inspiring the prophets to record God's take on events. He's active in regenerating Old Testament believers and in equipping, and in equipping the people of God for specific tasks. And in that, he would only come upon a specific person for a specific task for a specific period of time. And there are examples where he does that um, with kings, prophets, priests, and craftsmen. But the Old Testament prophets taught that there would come a time when there would be a liberal effusion of the Holy Spirit available to all. 
to the prophet Isaiah 44.3. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Or Ezekiel 39.28. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, for though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the Sovereign Lord. Speaking to the exiles who are in Babylon at the time. And then there's Joel, who in uh, Joel 2.28, as quoted by Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, universalized years in advance this outpouring, when he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just the Jews. And then, of course, the time arrives. We have the last prophet in the Old Testament period, if you like, age, John the Baptist, who is, of course, recorded in the New Testament. John the baptizer, who baptized in water, points to the one who will come after him, who will be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit, Jesus. We read in John 1, 33, And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me, that's God the Father, to baptize with water, told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize, or literally the one baptizing, it's a continuous tense, it's a present participle, with the Holy Spirit. And he, that's Jesus, is not going to do something once. He will continue doing it. It will be distinctive of Jesus' ministry, both when he was on earth and now that he is in heaven. So just as baptism in water is a characteristic of John's ministry, so baptism in the Holy Spirit is a characteristic of Jesus' ministry. And this reference, this distinctive and continuing ministry of Jesus is strengthened when we see just a few verses earlier in John 1.29 when we read this. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Literally, that's taking away. It's again a present continuous tense. It's something he will continue to do after he's, in fact, achieved our salvation through his death on the cross. So when you put the two together, verse 29 and verse 33, we discover the characteristic work of Jesus is removal and bestowal. He takes away sin and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. These two great gifts of our Saviour are brought together by the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. And they can't be separated. You can't have one without the other. You either have both or you don't have them at all. So Ezekiel says in verse, uh, chapter 36, 25, 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And Jeremiah, much the same in 31.31 of his book, also links these two blessings with this new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. 
I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So you begin to see how kind of wonderfully whole the scriptures are. There is a common mind behind them all. There is a common mind overseeing its working out over time. So the apostles are taking the promises of the prophets and relate them to this new covenant. They knew it had been established and ratified by the blood of Jesus, and so they spoke freely of the availability through the same Lord Jesus of the promised blessing of the new covenant. And so we have it here on the day of Pentecost with Peter proclaiming, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter was assuring that all who would repent and believe and give public evidence of their penitent faith in Jesus by being baptised in his name, that they would receive from God two free gifts, namely the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And a careful reading of the first two chapters of Acts leads us to the conclusion that this gift of the Spirit is synonymous with what has earlier been termed the promise of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, and the outpouring of the Spirit. Though two of those expressions may be said to emphasize more the giving and the other two the more receiving of the Spirit. We could sum it up by saying that these penitent believers receive the gift of the Spirit which God has promised before the day of Pentecost and were thus baptised with the Spirit who God poured out on the day of Pentecost. Further, the Apostle Peter retained that conviction about that identification when later Cornelius was converted and received the Spirit he is referred to equally, uh, that's referred to equally as the baptism and as the gift of the Spirit. He writes, Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift, he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? So he baptised him in water. This promise of the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, gift of the Spirit, are the same thing. And it is as much part of our salvation as the remission of sins. So negatively, we are rescued from sin, guilt, wrath and death. And positively, we receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to indwell us, to liberate us and transform us. And that is a very attractive package. For all who truly and earnestly repent of their sins and believe in the saving work of Jesus, he not only washes away their sins, but bathes them in his Holy Spirit so, the day of Pentecost and the gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ had some very unique features. If you read Joel, you'll probably make the connection as to why. 
And it was necessary for something to be kind of public and evidenced by this speaking in other foreign languages. So that the people would know that the same thing came on each of these four particular groups who then formed a united church. The sounds and the sights were unique to the day, but the languages were common certainly to three if not four of them. And the languages ensured that diverse people, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, disciples of John the Baptist, all heard the same message, all received the same spirit, all were part of the same apostolic church. The presence of the apostles ensured that the converts were anchored into this apostolic church and were part of the universal church. But as Peter said on that day, these twin gifts of remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, in a believer's life are available to all who repent of their sins and believe in the divinity of Jesus and the effectiveness of his work on the cross. Let us pray. Almighty God, your prophets of old spoke of a day when you would do a new thing for your people and pour out your spirit on all alike. We praise you that that day dawned for your church at Pentecost. We praise you that we are now living in that new age of the spirit. May his power cleanse, quicken and inspire our lives and renew the witness of your church in all the world to the furtherance of your kingdom and the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen.